I miss being here the past couple of weeks. Um, uh, two weekends ago when Paige and I were at Elevate, uh, Levi and Emma were with my parents and went with church, uh, to church, their church with them while they were down there. And so when we met back up with them and the kids returned, I, uh, I asked Levi, I was like, did you have fun at Grandma and Grandpa's church? And his first response was, yeah, but I like seeing Mr. Garrett more. Um, and it reminded me that when church is done right, it's about more than just the activities, about more than just the singing and more about just the preaching. You could get that pretty much anywhere that you wanted to at any church, but what makes church church is relationships and being rooted in relationships, and those relationships demand a certain kind of physical presence with one another, and when I'm not here, I actually miss it, and so does my son. And I, I watched a couple of services. I get the live streaming total thing last Sunday while I was quarantining. I watched a couple of churches and I'm like, let's go. Come on. What a great preacher. I want to preach like that. But there is always this fundamental lack of not being present here. So I'm grateful to be back. For those perhaps who might be wondering where my uh, family are, Emma tested positive for COVID a few days ago. And so Paige is at home with them. The temperature is lots of fun. And it's so fun to have these conversations about COVID all over again, isn't it? What do we do? What do we not do? But just grateful for Bryant and Tim both for preaching in recent weeks. And also just want to say Lane and Manny, it's great having you, but it's better to have Noah in service this morning. I heard all the chatter of folks as I, I saw you walking in. So if you guys want to see a new baby, just talk to Lane and Manny. Don't touch without asking, but like go and say hello and get a glimpse of that beautiful little guy who's, who's kind of the, the newest part of our church. Well, this morning, I'm going to try and go super fast, but we are starting a new sermon series that I have titled Rebuilding Church. And we're going to be spending the next several weeks and or months uh, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, and because I have to well, I think I should say this part anyways. But one of the odd experiences of quarantining for me, both in January and this most recent time, was uh, kind of the emergence out of isolation. Uh, as an introvert, quarantining is not a cross that I mind bearing. I actually really like getting away from people and being alone, and, or as alone as I possibly can be. But but I found that each time I, I had to emerge out of the quarantining, I felt a little disoriented socially, particularly with my neighbors. After my quarantine was officially over this past Friday, I came out of the cave of my backyard, which Paige made me stay in for all 10 days. And I was sitting with some of our neighbors outside in the street, and it was kind of awkward and uncomfortable. I was sort of distanced a little bit, not speaking much, and feeling a bit awkward about all of the interactions after having not really communicated with anybody for 10 days. And seeing my awkwardness, one of my neighbors asked, like, are you okay? And I was like, I don't know if I'm okay or not. But it was a familiar situation, but felt so unfamiliar to me. I sit and I chat with my neighbors all of the time, sit and talk with friends and neighbors, and yet in that moment, I felt a little disoriented. And our current cultural moment feels a lot like that to me. Things that are familiar to us feel strangely unfamiliar. 
Have you ever been in a fight with a significant other or a spouse or a child or a parent and you say something like, I don't even know who you are right now, right? It's familiar, but there's something going on that just feels a bit unfamiliar. That's what this cultural moment in many ways feels like to me right now. I don't know if you all feel that way or not. It feels that way politically, doesn't it? We have the same governing structure in our country, the same two-party system that's in place, and yet we feel a strange unfamiliarity with what has been familiar. It feels that way religiously. We have the same faith, we're in the same denomination, still hosting the same services on Sunday mornings, and yet as we watch the decline of the church in America, things feel strangely unfamiliar. It feels that way for many in their personal faith. We worship the same God, we read the same Bibles, and yet after a bit of deconstruction, We feel strangely unfamiliar with our faith. Feels that way a bit in our church right now. We're in the same building with the same cross and the same stained glass. And it's kind of a new thing that we all, some are still adjusting to. And we're still grasping in many ways for what is the quote, new normal that we've been talking about for the past two years. When will we know that it has arrived? Has it arrived? Will things feel like they used to? Will there be this inner peace? Will this sort of feeling of being unfamiliar with the familiar ever stop. And though it's from centuries past, Ezra and Nehemiah are grappling with many of these same realities in the books of the Old Testament. And we want to lean into the wisdom, into the truths available to us of how to navigate a time that comes in these books. And this morning, I want to kick off our series by offering a brief sort of background on Ezra and Nehemiah, and my real hope actually is that you would hear a word of hopefulness and good news this morning. I titled my sermon, God is Not Forgotten. And for some this morning, perhaps you need to be reminded that you are not forgotten by God. And to ground us this morning, I want to read Ezra 1, so invite you to hear the word of the Lord this morning, church. I don't know if it's going to be on the screen. That's okay if it's not, Garrett. Hear the word of the Lord. Ezra begins this way. In the first year, Cyrus was king of Persia. The Lord caused Cyrus to send an announcement to his whole kingdom and to put it in writing. This happened so the Lord's message spoken by Jeremiah would come true. He wrote, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, was given has given all the kingdoms of the earth to me and has, he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. May God be with all of you who are his people. You are free to go to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel who is in Jerusalem. Those who stay behind, whatever they leave, live, should support those who want to go. Give them silver and gold, supplies and cattle and special gifts for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family leaders of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites got ready to go to Jerusalem. Everyone God had caused to want to go to Jerusalem to build the temple of the Lord. All their neighbors helped them, giving them things made of silver and gold, along with supplies, cattle, valuable gifts, and special gifts for the temple. Also, King Cyrus brought out the bowls and pans that belonged in the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his own God. Oof. Cyrus, king of Persia, 
had Methredath, the treasurer, bring them and count them out for Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. He listed 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 pans, 30 gold bowls, 410 matching silver bowls, and 1,000 other pieces. There was a total of 5,400 pieces of gold and silver. Sheshbazar brought all these things along when the captives went from Babylon to Jerusalem. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Like any good story, uh, getting a prequel that is learning the background of the story will help us better understand what all is going on in that story. Ezra, in many ways, is called the second exodus. The first exodus is, of course, the exodus, which took place a thousand years before this exodus. It is called the second exodus because as the children of Israel who had once been in bondage in Egypt and exited Egypt and came to the promised land, the people of God, Israel, were displaced again, this time in Babylon, and they return again to the promised land. In the first exodus, they were uh, in bondage for 400 years by the Egyptians, but this second exodus was preceded by 70 years of bondage to the Babylonians, which we often will refer to as exile. The Babylonians are able to put Israel in bondage by conquering them and and doing so in three separate military campaigns, if you will. And after each attack, the Babylonians, what they would do is they they would take Israelites and send them and ship them off to their capital, Babylon. And there are three different campaign attacks, and so there's three different exiles that take place in Israel's history. Three different groups of people who were shipped off to go to another country, and the hope was that you eventually sort of ruin your enemy's culture, and it doesn't last, and they actually assimilate into your culture. But the first of these three exiles happened in 605 BC. The second was in 597 BC, and the final Uh, Exile was in 586 BC. And after the third campaign, the Babylonians completely burned down Jerusalem and the temple, which represented for the Israelites the presence of God in the world. And as there were three different exiles into Babylon, there were three separate returns from Babylon to Jerusalem. The first under a guy named Zerubbabel, which is a great name for your next child if you're going to have one. The second was under the priest and scribe Ezra, and the third was under Nehemiah. All three of these returns from Babylon back to Jerusalem are recorded in these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah. The first two returns are in Ezra, and the, 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 the last one is recorded in Nehemiah. That's the background of these books. But the two biblical themes I want us to hone in on this morning are the themes of captivity and exodus. And they are important for our understanding, not just of the Exodus or the second Exodus, but for our understanding of the entirety of the scriptures in the Bible. You see, in the first captivity of Israel, God's people find themselves as slaves for 400 years. Slaves for 400 years. This is why many of the pastors and scholars and theologians in the black church particularly in the West, find so much meaning in the Exodus story. 
because they emerged from a heritage of centuries-long slavery. They longed for hundreds of years to be liberated from their oppression. But within the biblical story of captivity, slavery isn't just an evil thing, it is a formative thing. The people of God during their captivity in Egypt, they aren't just slaves, they are formed, their identities are formed into slaves. They are formed to serve Pharaoh. They are formed to work endlessly. They are formed to be and equate their identity to their production. This captivity and slavery denigrates their identity, not only as the unique people of God, but the basic truth of all humans that we are all bearers of God's image. And in slavery, that's twisted and, and, and messed up. And biblically, this captivity of Israel is not just Israel's captivity to Egypt. It can be thought of as a way of thinking about the world's captivity to sin. Sin is sometimes used as a word to describe like those things that you know you shouldn't do, but you do them anyways, right? I mean, I don't do any of those things, but for those who might, like you know what I'm talking about, lying or cheating or stealing, that would be a sin. But sin can also be used in a different way. Sin can be used to describe the way our world seems to be infected with a kind of evil sickness. There is something deeply wrong with the world. We only need to look at recent headlines in the news to see the symptoms of that sickness that we call sin. 19 children and two adults massacred in Uvalde, Texas. 10 victims of racist shooting in Buffalo, New York. The unprovoked invasion of a sovereign nation by the tyrant Vladimir Putin that has led to the deaths of moms and dads and children and displaced millions more from their homes. And truthfully, we don't even need to look that far to see how sick our world is. Just look at the, uh, the car show at Satakoy a couple weekends ago that ended in the death of, a, I think it was a 23-year-old boy. And yet we have our own stories of selfishness and violence and addiction and divorce and harm that we have seen or have committed. And the insidious thing about sin is not just that it happens, but how it forms us. The survivors of Uvalde will never be able to undo or to be unaffected by what happened that day. That will be with them for the rest of their lives. That's how sin works. And the same is true in New York and Ukraine and in our own lives. For the ways that sin has, has shaped and affected our lives, we are formed by it. And so in response to his people's captivity in Egypt, God raises up this leader that we know as Moses to confront Pharaoh. And after burning some bushes, and, or not burning bushes, but setting it on fire, and there's frogs and gnats and hail and all sorts of things in the Passover, Pharaoh releases God's people from from slavery, and, and Moses leads them into the promised land. But their exodus is not just to be a, a freedom from their captivity. It is done with the purpose of reforming them to no longer live like slaves, but to live as free people, to live what we would say in Scripture as a holy people, set apart from God, to take on a new identity. And so on the journey to the promised land, God gives his people the law to give them a vision for what the holy life looks like. 
And this was not for their own benefit. It is so that they might fulfill their vocation and calling to be a blessing to the world and to the nations. The way that God is going to bless the nations, the way that God is going to bring healing in the world is by making a people a holy people. That's the plan. And so the people enter into the promised land and they do okay at first. They're like, ah, this is better than slavery. Maybe we should obey some of these commandments, right? They establish a king and the king is there, supposed to sort of uh, govern in a way that brings the, the justice of God within the people of God. So you have King Saul, he's pretty good. You have David, if he's the, <laughs> the standard bearer for great holy kings, you have a really low bar, right? <laughs> like he, we think of David as great, but he's not allowed to build a temple because he commits so many acts of violence. God's like, you have way too much blood on your hands, dude. Then you got his son Solomon who has his own issues, right? And it just, it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse while they are in the promised land. And as time goes on, it's very apparent that God's people are not living a holy life in the promised land. So they, in fact, do much the opposite. And so God uses and permits the Babylonian empire to displace them from the promised land. This is kind of how it works, by the way, in the Old Testament What happens is when sin infects people, God pushes them out of the land. We see this in Genesis 3, right? Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit they're not supposed to eat. What they got to do? Separated from God, pushed away from the garden. And as Israel has been sent into exile, they begin to wrestle with the implications of their captivity now. They think on the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, and wonder if God will forget them. There's an entire book dedicated to that purpose called Lamentations in the Old Testament. It's a book that contains the laments, the mourning of God's people due to their exile. And the book ends this way. It's crazy to me that this is in the scriptures, but it is. It says, why have you forgotten us for so long? Have you left us forever? Bring us back to you, Lord, and we will return. Make our days as they were before, or have you completely rejected us? Are you so angry with us? Why have you forgotten us for so long? Have you left us forever? Have you completely rejected us? Have you ever been there before with God? Feeling forgotten by God. Feeling as though you were rejected by God. Wondering if there is even the possibility for redemption for you because, man, you really messed up. See, it's one of the things about sin is that it doesn't just form us. It isn't just wrong that we're doing. It it actually separates us from God and we can feel that distance sometimes in our lives. And we in the church, we... We, we like to point out to people just how far away from God they often are. We love that. Because there's certain kinds of sins that if you do those sins, you are really forgotten by God, right? We got our hierarchy of things that separate us out and send us away. The things that God is super angry about and the things that God's sort of just mildly angry about. Those happen to be my sins, well, thankfully, right? For some who may not have any, any background, right, with church or faith or religion or scripture, there's this sense that I've talked to, to people that invite them to church and they have this pervading sense that they just can't be near God. Oh, pastor, if I walked into church, God would smite me down from heaven. How many times have I heard it? 
There's a sense that God is angry. But sin isn't just about what we do for some of us. For many of us, it's about what has been done to us. For many in the world, we are victims of somebody else's sin. And that has wreaked havoc on our lives. See, the thing about the story of exile or the story of captivity in Egypt, but particularly the, the, the story of being sent into Babylon, for sure there are some people who could think to themselves, we deserve to be in exile because we were unfaithful to God. But there's a whole generation or two that are actually just born into exile, born into captivity, not because of what they did, but because of what people did to before them, if I'll say it that way. In my studies, in my master's program right now, I have become massively aware of the prevalence of things like violence and abuse in families. I become aware of the extent of which people carry around with them experiences of trauma that they've had in the past. And this is not just happening outside of the church, it's happening inside of the church. For those who follow news about the evangelical church in America, I know you all do. There's a report recently released just a couple of weeks ago about abuse cover-up in one of the largest Protestant denominations in America. People carry around with them, not just in their memories or their minds, but in their actual bodies, the trauma of somebody else's sin committed against them. And in my more sobering moments in life, I look out at all that sin has ravaged on the world and I'm wondering, where are you, God? Where are you? And the good news of the text this morning is that God has not forgotten his people. The good news of our text this morning is that despite the failings of God's people and despite the prevalence of evil and sin in the world, God has been working in the background of our lives and in history in surprising ways to bring about our redemption, to bring about the healing of the world. And sometimes it just doesn't feel that way, does it? But this is the audacious hope that we have, that God hasn't forgotten. And standing on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ, we're reminded that God is not just absent, but God is actually very present in the midst of the sufferings of this world. What stands over us every single Sunday morning when we worship is this image of a God who enters into the sufferings, who endures the cross, who endures injustice, who endures the pain, who endures the violence in solidarity with those who are suffering in the world. And he says, you are not forgotten. And the question then that we're left with, right, that we're going to be exploring for the next several months, is when you are in that moment of brokenness and hurt and disorientation and everything feels so unfamiliar, what do you do? What do you do? But the starting point is here in this profession and hopefulness that despite our circumstances, God 
has not forgotten you. That is good news, church. That is good news for us this morning. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.